0: Welcome to the American Reformer podcast, promoting a vigorous Christian approach to the cultural challenges of our day and rooted in the rich tradition of Protestant social and political thought. Hosted by Josh Abitoy and Ben Dunson. Good morning, everyone. Welcome back to the American Reformer podcast. You've got Josh Abitoy here. You have Timon Klein, uh, the usual suspects. And we're very blessed to have with us this morning, Yuri Brito. Yuri is the senior pastor of Providence CREC Church in Pensacola, Florida. And as of uh, just a, a week or two ago, he is now the presiding minister of the CREC. That stands for the Communion of Reformed and Evangelical Churches. Um, this is a, a group of reformed churches that has, what, maybe ten or 11,000 members now. Uh, souls under its under its watch uh, rapidly growing uh, it's an exciting denomination and uh, and uh, you know they're doing great things uh, this is the denomination that has some stalwarts like Doug Wilson and Peter lighthart and many other names you're probably familiar with but um, Yuri we are so glad to have you with us this morning thank you for joining us
1: hey thank you very much Josh real delight to be with you
0: Excellent. Well, Yuri, why don't you just tell us a little bit bit about yourself to kick things off?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you again for having me. Uh, I was born in northeastern Brazil, and I've been here in the U.S. for about 30 years now. I came to the U.S. to study, to go to high school. High school led me through college, college through seminary, seminary through some doctoral work and some counseling work. So my entire academic adult life has been here in the United States. I'm the son of a Baptist minister, even though I came to Presbyterian conviction at the age of 19 years old, and I have fallen in love with the role of the church in society, and as a result, that led me to pastoral ministry in 2008. I have been serving a wonderful congregation of a little bit over 300 members here in Pensacola, Florida, and I have loved them, and they have loved me and my family in return. It's been a a wonderful uh, mutual affection for one another wonderful
0: and, and um, yeah and have, have you been living in, in Florida for most of your life now or, or where
1: have you where else have you lived in the states during your time here I came initially to the United States and I lived in South Carolina for a little bit my father is a graduate of Bob Jones University which in the 80s was essentially the conservative institution in the United States and then after that I lived for a little season in Pennsylvania but then most of my entire life as an adult has been here in Florida living in Central Florida when I was in seminary, and then here in the panhandle of Florida, Pensacola, when I took this pastoral position. Wonderful, wonderful.
0: Well, um, I, I think, let's, let's dig in. I, I mean, the, the, the thing that we really wanted to hit on with you is to, I think, one, um, introduce our listeners who may not be CREC members, to the, the CREC, and particularly its, its polity, um, how is it similar to and different from uh, other Presbyterian bodies? But then, you know, move on from that to hearing about your heart uh, for the role that you're filling, um, what, what, you're, what the calling is, what, what you're called to do in that role. But, but maybe to set the table, tell us a little bit about
1: how the CREC's governance works. Well, the CREC uh, began in 1998 when three concerned ministers gathered together in the Pacific Northwest, and they sort of joined forces as a way of finding commonality, both theologically and also boosting their fellowship as, as men and as ministers. That, of course, has led to some wonderful dynamics over the years, especially as societal challenges have given us an opportunity to sort of express ourselves. So that little Band of Brothers with Three Ministers now has, has grown to about uh, around 125 churches in the United States and internationally as well. And so the CREC began with a, a group of men who wanted to find commonality in theology, but that didn't mean they had identical theological convictions. There were some men who had session members or leadership in their congregations with pastors or elders who held to the London Baptist Confession and then others who held to the Westminster Confession of Faith. And so there was this initial Presbyterian-Baptist unity because they believed in the greater war being fought in society, and so they were willing to uh, consider this, uh, this distinction in theological conviction among the leaders, and so they made some initial concessions on these issues just as a way of providing initial unity among the early churches. And that has continued in our 25 years of history, and we have been able to uh, bring together a a largely Presbyterian body with a few committed uh, London Baptist Confession advocates as well within the denomination. And so we have as a communion this joint statement among our churches so that Baptist people coming to our congregations are able to join holding to their Baptistic convictions. And Presbyterians are able to join a London Baptist church holding to their Presbyterian convictions. So as a largely Reformed denomination, there is this, this consensus to allow these two differing bodies to come together. We also allow Anglicans as well, but that's a separate conversation. I think that the primacy of the denomination functions uh, per, through uh, Presbyterian and Baptist. What that does, of course, is it creates a little bit of tension in the way we think of government and polity issues, and which means that as a confederation of churches, we allow individual churches to practice their particular polities. So if you're a Baptist church, you can function in the congregational model. However, when you do join forces internationally as a council, you function through Presbyterian policy, which means that polity which means that the CREC contains Presbyteries, as you would see in a Presbyterian model. And those Presbyteries gather once every three years to discuss issues pertaining to the entire international body. And so there's a, at, at a hierarchical level, there is a Presbyterian policy, but at a local level, there is the independence, the freedom to function as you would like, depending on the, the consent of the session or of the leadership that's that's
0: really helpful i i um that's the most detailed explanation i've ever heard on it so th- thank you for that it, it, and and like i'm coming i'm a southern baptist uh, for for your context and background okay. but it, it is i know in some presbyterian uh, mm-hmm. denominations and and certainly in the more structured denominations uh, like the anglicans the um the, the individual churches can't just sort of leave on their own accord, which in, in the Baptist world, that's, you know, associations are very lightly held. You can right. join one, leave it the next day. Um, but, but what is, how sticky is the CREC? In other words, if a, if a Baptist or Presbyterian church were to join, you know, is, it, is their building now owned by the CREC, right? Like what,
1: what happens? Yeah, that's a great question because a lot of mainline churches are going through that precise dilemma at this point, Josh. Churches in the Methodist or in the mainline Presbyterian tradition, the PCUSA, are trying to leave their local congregations because of rampant leftist ideologies. And they have now to deal with the bureaucracy of who owns the building. And the PCUSA, the Presbytery, owns the building, which means it makes it very difficult for a local church to leave their their body or to leave the denomination because now they are, in many ways, they, they no longer have a building. So they have to deal with that. In the CREC, there is, again, the independence of the local church. So local churches own their own buildings, and so they are responsible for for everything. Though you can have, there are ways in which you can raise support, you can um, uh, petition, in certain cases, the CREC to help in these kinds of voluntary manners. But overall, there is an independence of the local church to function, though they have particular responsibilities to the broader assembly. So, there's independence locally, but um, responsibilities to the broader assembly. And that has functioned very well. It may appear to those outside to be uh, somewhat chaotic and schizophrenic, but it has really worked well, despite the inconsistencies we might look at, at it. But I think we have what you have is a general consensus on the theological significance and in the cultural battles, the political battles. That provides an additional layer of rationale for the unity of the denomination. And that I think has been in many ways the success and why we have in many ways grown from a, you know, from a a denomination of one or for three churches to over 120. And so I think that has allowed the world to see that these things can happen. There can be this unified force, especially if you see what the greater battles are out there and there is a, a happy allegiance to one another despite our differences.
0: Now, just tell me, tell us a little bit about um, what what your vocation is as presiding minister. So, what what is what does this um, this role entail? How long is the term, and what you know what? How do you intend to uh, to 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 function in this role?
1: Yeah, thank you for the question. So, our general council was held in Moscow, Idaho, which is in northern Idaho. We meet every three years. The last one. Was two years ago. We've had a little bit of adjustment because of COVID, but now we're back to the three-year cycle. So we meet every three years, and what that does initially, just as a, as a, a side point, Josh, is it allows the denomination to consider and contemplate ideas before they're they're voted at a general council. So we're not. That means we're not we're not every year rethinking and readjusting our constitution and bylaws. So three years allows everyone to think through issues, think through. Constitutional matters, propose a draft, and then have three years to think through what that draft should look like. Should it be approved three years later? So that happens. And so, what we did is we met this past uh, week in Moscow, Idaho. The delegates join for a general council, it's the last element of the council. The presbyteries meet first, they discuss the issues that will be addressed at a council level. Then the council meets presided by the presiding minister. In this case, it was Virgil Hurt, who is a minister in Lynchburg, Virginia. He presides over that meeting. And each presbytery provides two delegates to meet. And so in our case, there were seven presbyteries, so 14 delegates. These delegates vote on a variety of things. There's a consent agenda. They vote on passing memorials. They vote on passing uh, particular statements. They vote on passing whatever is on the agenda. And that usually will last two days worth of meetings. Guests or presbyters who are not delegates can sit down. This is all public. They can sit down and watch, and so it's a it's a fairly a public uh, a, a, a public event. There are cases in which executive sessions need to be taken, but that's that's rare. And so they decide these issues. And the last item to be discussed is the issue of. If it's, if it's an issue of el- it's election season, the last item is reserved for the election of a presiding minister and a presiding minister pro tempore, pro tem, the equivalent of a vice president, an assistant to the presiding minister. In this case, I was nominated and I was elected unanimously by the delegates. There was a, a little section where they're able to question me and ask me particular questions related to what my thoughts are, my theological dispositions may be concerning a particular issue. They asked those questions, and then they brought it up to a vote. And so I was elected as the presiding minister. That term began at the moment the council ends. And from that moment, I began a three-year term with the possibility of a re-election for three more years. And so Virgil Hurt had served faithfully for six years, and he presided over, obviously, as you all know one of the most complicated seasons of American ecclesiology, which was during the COVID season. And he was able to successfully make statements that gave a greater impetus and motivation for our congregations to remain open during that season. And he set a wonderful example. He suffered greatly during the six years. He had a heart attack and God was able to bring him back to life. It's really quite a testimony of grace and perseverance from Virgil Hurt. And so I am extremely honored to be following in his footsteps as I begin my now uh, seven-day <laughs> seven term as presiding minister of the CREC.
2: Well, and Yuri, I heard um, you, can, you can confirm this. Uh, I heard that once you were elected, there was white smoke spotted rising from Doug Wilson's house on, on the hill there. Is that, is that true or was he just burning a couch?
1: I do want to, <laughs> I do want to correct that. It wasn't white smoke; it was pipe smoke. Okay, yeah, and it was coming out corporately from all the councilmen, and that was really a great. It was a delight. There's a, a, a massive mix of aromatic and other things, but it was a it was a pleasing aroma in the sight of God.
2: Well, I am. I mean, I agree with Josh. the The explanation you were giving of the CREC generally um, is is the best kind of one stop shop I've I've heard on that, and it, it is. You know, foreign to both Baptists and Presbyterians alike. Um, you know, because it's it's got it's got a certain rowdiness to it, but also has the general you know Presbyterian polity. So you know, for someone coming from the OPC, it's a little scary for Josh. It probably right. seems a little restrictive because he's you know the SBC. <laughs> so the but this is fascinating. Right. You know, and it kind of reminds me too of the um, you know in this in like mid 17th century when, you know, all the nonconformists are are pretty much underground, there is this movement to unite Congregationalists and Presbyterians in England. I mean the CREC has already outlasted that, but it's, you know, the same kind of effort and it was res- in a in a similar way being responsive to to things going on, you know, in the culture and in the country and realizing, you know, you have to and they're they tried to make it work. And it it was basically this kind of model. So it's totally fascinating to me. If I did have a question with the um just purely on this polity point. So if you have, you said, you said there's, um, there's seven Presbyteries. Is that right? And two, two uh, representatives per Presbytery show up. So 14 total.
1: Well, our growth has been fairly significant. So in this last council, we approved the formation of two new Presbyteries, oh, okay. which are uh, Bootser and Kuiper. So all our Presbyteries are named after Let's say church fathers, even though some of them are 19th century.
2: Okay. okay. So what if there was a Baptist church, like a 1689 church that joined, are they considered part of a presbytery and they get they get representatives that way, or do they send their own delegates from their congregation? That was my only question about that.
1: Yes. So they are, depending on what geographical location they're in, they are placed into that presbytery. And then that particular church, once it becomes a member church, and that process could be, depending on the situation, generally two years for them to become a member church, to be approved and to be uh, come under presbytery care with vows administered and all that, that can be two years. Once they become member churches, they're able to vote in presbytery meetings and they send two delegates to the presbytery meetings to deal with presbytery, presbytery, presbytery issues. Uh, pertaining to the to the particular presbytery it might be. In my case, I was the presiding minister of the Athanasius Presbytery, and that covers the southeast part of the country. So now we have nine, and so that expands all the way to Eastern Europe, Japan, Canada, and we have hopes of bringing in churches from – oh, also Brazil, of course. We planted a couple churches in Brazil, my home country, and we have hopes now uh, to plant churches in, in Norway and in Nairobi, Kenya, Lord willing. So yeah, the individual Baptist church will be placed into a particular presbytery base in this geographical location. Gotcha.
0: Gotcha. Okay, that's super helpful. Yeah.
1: I, I want to circle
0: back to something you said right at the front end of this recording. Uh, you, you said, I think you were drawn to ministry because you you realized the potential for the church to serve, you, you know, to serve society. I, I also, I think I met you in person for the first time at the NatCon conference in right. 2022. Uh, you gave a, 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 a wonderful prayer um, at, from the plenary stage at NatCon. Like You seem to be a, a man who's, who's very public-minded and have a vocation for having a prophetic voice uh, to broader American society. Can you tell us a little bit about you know, what are the key issues? What do you hope to uh, sound a prophetic voice on during your your term as presiding minister? And then a little bit of the
1: how, how do you intend to do that? Well, the role of the presiding minister of Presbyterian Council, he's a spokesman, he's a representative, and there are particular responsibilities that come with that. But I view the the, the title of spokesman as a fairly unique one. It's by nature a, a public position. And so therefore, I, I wish to use that role publicly, not contradicting the denomination or speaking outside of my 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 limitations. But I want to speak on behalf of the denomination, of our community on issues pertaining to social issues, political issues, ecclesial issues, and these are there are always opportunities for these kinds of things. And so I can I can provide statements on particular cultural issues that can be discussed among the presiding ministers, and I could on behalf of the communion, present these statements as our previous presiding minister did, and statements concerning COVID and the, the closing of churches and vaccinations and things of that nature. So this is part of my role. And I think that the church for, for a very long time, for a variety of reasons, it could be pietism, it could be for uh, you know, reasons of scatological positions that sort of keep the church relatively safe, in it's internalized issues, you know, internalized dilemmas within the four walls of these, uh, within the four walls of their ideology. The CREC holds to, we could say, Kyperion, but overall, I think just your general Reformational position, which would be, if you read the Institutes, for example, you have Calvin speaking very boldly to the king, and so I think a Reformational position on these issues would. Um, allow the minister to speak boldly in regards to political issues and in regards to sociological or ecclesial issues. And so my role would be to speak on behalf of the communion on all these issues that they arise. You don't want to tackle every single one of them because you don't want to be that prolific where you become meaningless in your assessment of the reality of the cultural ethos, but you do want to address fundamental issues. And so you can do that through statements, but. As a whole, the CREC has a fairly coherent and harmonious way of looking at the world, Josh. And I think that is the attracting feature of our communion, the CREC, is that within our 25 years of existence, we've been able to speak boldly when a lot of churches were very much reserved or protecting their reputation. And in many ways, the CREC has been a haven, a refuge place for ministers and elders and parishioners who have lost interest in protecting their reputation. And so as a result, there is this kind of inherent boldness that comes from our communion. And when we gather, what I think what makes our communion so joyful, why we can gather for counsel, and even though we dealt with particular with differences, we could meet afterwards for cigars and whiskey and have this lovely communion and fellowship is because we're, we have all this overarching commitment to not only biblical truth and biblical authority, but to speak against the winds of doctrine that come and attempt to invade the, uh, the beauty of the local and the, uh, and the broader church. And so I think my role would be in many ways to yeah. uh, keep guard against these prevailing winds and then to speak as boldly as I can on these matters um, from a, a public position as a representative of our communion.
0: Yeah, that's 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 wonderful. And and you're 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 so right. I mean, I'm speaking I'm speaking as a Baptist yeah. who I, I'm like, you know, I'm the kind of Baptist that might be called a Baptist Baptist in the sense that um like I do um you know, there, there's some some Baptists can can join with the CREC institutionally, um, but I, I if I'm not mistaken, the the condition to doing so is is actually that they do they do recognize uh, the baptisms that are performed in in accord with Presbyterian belief, and some Baptists, as as you know. Um, and, and I would be in that number. We, would say no. You know, th- this is. You know, we we think that the circumstances of baptism and the validity have to do with the baptism being done as the volitional act of a person who's able to kind of knowingly uh, undertake that uh, that ordinance. Um, but but all of that aside, the I've seen just tremendous. Um, interest from, from Baptist Baptists, people who are in my tribe who, who aren't going to necessarily, maybe their, their, their convictions wouldn't maybe allow them to join the CREC, but they're deeply grateful for the ministry of many people in the CREC. And they, they want, I mean, in a lot of ways, they, they want uh, to, you know, to, to, they're inspired by it and they want to implement certain, you know, similar, certain um, practices in their own churches, in a way that's maybe uh, obviously transcribed a bit for a different denominational context, right. Right. Um, but but anyways, it's 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 the the CRC is growing rapidly. It's still relatively small compared to something like the SBC, which has thirteen million people in it. But the influence of the CRC far exceeds uh, you know just the churches that are in formal um, cooperation with it.
1: Right, and I think the the issue at stake i think the issue you're addressing josh is sort of the the ability that god has in in giving small numbers of people the capacity to speak more prophetically than a large class of people and so i know that there are going to be difficulties as we grow as we work through a lot of these issues but the level of strength given to a small body of people can be fairly more effective culturally when they're speaking harmoniously than a broad group of people, large body, that have so many fundamental political theological differences that they can't unite on basic issues like opposition to wokeism or LGBT clauses, or even female ordination is another one. And so this is where we are. We're we're fairly, we're self-aware of our smallness and our insignificance. We really are. But when I see people like Peter Lightheart starting institutions like the Theopolis training ministers... When I see what's happening in Moscow, Idaho, when I see what's happening in small parts of the country through classical education, which is very, very much deeply affiliated with the CREC, virtually most CREC churches are affiliated or meet in a Christian classical school. And so that combination of a profound historical Western education, that didactic approach in combination with classical worship practices, classic worship liturgical practices, provides the kind of cohesiveness that allows our voice to be quite profound in the culture. And that was the appeal that I had early on in the CREC. I came from the PCA, spent seven years there. But even though the CREC was very small when I joined in 2008, probably around 30 churches, I knew that there was something unique about it, and even though we were small, I knew that what I wanted to see in the life of the church was going to be represented there when we were small, and by God's grace, is still represented now with 130 churches. So we're aware of our insignificance culturally, but I'm also aware that if you get a committed small body of Christian warriors and priests, that God can do something magnificent through them. Uh, yeah brother i I don't mention the size to say you're insignificant at all i think
0: I mentioned it to say that um you know the the uh you the c r e c is a group of leaders i mean you're at the vanguard of of evangelicalism in a lot of ways um you know the at American reformer, we talk a lot about the negative world and you know right. all of the um the the drastically changing conditions that require a lot of rethinking. Um, within evangelical institutions, big ones. And, you know, the, the, in a lot of ways, y- you, you and your group have been at the vanguard of addressing these changing conditions for, you know, 20 years now. You're, and, 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 you know, in, in this role that you're going to undertake, I, I see a lot of potential for um, you to inspire. I, I think at times uh, rebuke by example, Mm. Uh, the leaders of much larger evangelical institutions who are not um, who who at times are taking the role of the false prophet of peace rather than uh, speaking
1: hard prophetic words to to the church and to society at large. Yeah, no, thank thank you for that. When I spoke at the council last week, I, I spoke at the main worship service we had, and there were over you know over a thousand people. It was a really humbling experience to see how much we've grown. And I did affirm that we are small. I affirmed that in that in that sermon, how and which means that we need to be somewhat cautious at this stage of our history, that we don't commit the same mistakes that massive churches, massive denominations, made when they were young, you know. And so, and that means we need a, a humble vision, a vision that preserves our ideals, but also a bold vision that says that though we are small, God has made us strong. And that we're moving in the right trajectory. And so one of our concerns, even as we move on, is that what we do now with 130 churches would set the stage for when we get to 300, 500. And that requires, of course, leadership, but that requires also a a massive commitment to the ideals of who we are as a people. And I think that is crucial as we move in the next 25 years of our communion. Yeah.
2: Well, Yuri, the one thing I wanted to ask you about, which kind of you know, Josh brought up, um, the you know at NatCon twenty twenty two, which all three of us were at. Um, I think that's also yes. where I met you in person for the first time. Yes, um, and we all enjoyed fellowshipping and hanging out. Um, it was superb, and uh, there's there's still stories about that that we all enjoy laughing about. <laughs> Those will remain secret. Um, but the, the another time I saw you uh, publicly. Um, speaking on these on similar things as, as we're swirling around at NATcon was um, in DC and you were giving a speech on on Kuiper um, and I know Kuiper's been this was at an American moment event uh, on theology and statecraft um, just a really good uh, really good speech and engagement um, at that event and I know Kuiper you also write a lot about about Kuiper and you said that um, you know in many ways Kuiper um, sort of um, is the the tenor or the the approach publicly that the CREC gen- you know is generally adopted? So tell us a little bit about Kuiper and his influence on you for public theology, for the way you view the CREC's mission um, and engagement with society, um, you know, so on and so forth.
1: Yeah, well, thank thank you for that question. Anytime I get a chance to talk about Kuiper, I, I gladly take it. I'll be delivering four lectures in a couple of weeks in Virginia on Kuiper. So he's very fresh in my mind. He's been a part of my my theological theological corpus for a long time, ever since I did an independent study on Abraham Kuyper with Professor John Frame at RTS. I think Kuyper serves as this, Josh was talking about this earlier, it serves as this public persona who came from a modernist world. He saw the theological war that he was experiencing, what we would call for lack of a better term, in the mainline churches of the Netherlands. And when he came to the theological convictions that would place him squarely within the Dutch confessional tradition, he realized that the the church of the Netherlands had forsaken confessionalism and, as the Bible would say, how great was their fall. They fell by critical, you know, critical theology by revisionism, by historical revisionism, and they completely abandoned the confessional statements of the reform tradition, the three forms of unity in particular, and so Kuiper believed that the church needed to be reshaped, and if the national church did not have the kind of cohesiveness that is required for a, a body to persevere, then they're going to be thrown in, in every direction. And they were. And my argument is that as the church goes, so goes the culture, so goes the politics, so goes everything. It begins with the kind of theological training, the training in practical issues, training even political issues at the local church, and that overflows the public square. In some ways, Kuiper did fight the pietism of the Netherlands. There were particular, you know, particular expressions of ecclesiology that Focus only on word and sacrament and believe very firmly that the ecclesial body had nothing to say to the political sphere. Kuyper went beyond that, much beyond that, and believed that it was the church's role through their representatives to speak to particular cultural issues, political issues. And so Kuyper, of course, is the As one author refers, he's God's Renaissance man. He delved into all sorts of issues. He was a journalist, he was a statesman, he was a minister, he was someone who was very deeply aware of the needs of society. And he believed that the authority of Jesus, that the Great Commission, that the Lordship of Jesus needed to speak to every area of society. There are issues we may disagree with Kuiper, but I think the the general sentiment and principle behind of Kuiperian theology embodied in, in neo-Calvinist thought, which in some ways has gone astray, but there's still a strong body of neo-Calvinists who have desire to preserve orthodox and confessionalism. That, that incentive in Kuyperian thought in 19th century has allowed Reformed churches, in particular the CREC, to believe that the role of the church is not mere internal, not mere in the piety of the church, not merely in the significance of the word and sacrament, however um, powerful these things are in the life of the church, but that all these things ought to overflow to the world. And they have corresponding analogies, we might say, so that the word spoken ought to be the prophetic word spoken outwardly. The sacraments partaken ought to be the display of Christian affection, love, um, uh, mutual affection, but also hospitality and these kinds of things outwardly. So that the work and the sacraments of the church have corresponding realities that ought to be displayed in the world so that the Christian doesn't retire his Christian hat on Sunday morning but he brings it and then he carries it to the world so that his vocation is also an extension of his worshiping practices and that's where I think Kuiper is fundamental to understanding these things uh, there are others who maybe do, maybe do a better job but Kuiper is such a a powerful and a prolific figure that he becomes very central in these discussions and who we are as a communion of reformed evangelical churches.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: No, that's, that's good. I mean, I think that the, um, I mean, you know, I rib, rib you about Kuyper all, all the time, but I do, do appreciate <laughs> the way that um, you use him and you know, th- the way you think about these things. And we have mu- you know much, much agreement, especially, um, you know, when you're, when you're fellow cellmates uh, debating over, um you know the theory of escape is is only so useful eventually you have to actually try to escape so uh you know that's kind of where I see, exactly. it, see us at the, at this stage but um and i think and I think Kuiper um you know it's as you kind of laid out you know introduced Kuiper it's as much his story as it is his ideas um, that are that make up his legacy that I think have inspired a lot of reformed people um that have felt kind of homeless in their their original denominations um in this regard um you know it's inspired them to to look right. at things differently to get more active um and th- this is you know this is a, a criticism i've actually heard of the CREC so these would be from people that would be um disagree with us on on many things probably but would be you know still consider themselves generally theologically conservative and they i've you know kind of heard criticisms of of people of our of our general persuasion and then, and then a lot of them end up in the CREC that you know we're we're allowing um, you know, it's kind of a denomination that is is too geared towards the, you know, what's public or political and that they're, you know, you're letting the cart get before the horse sort of a thing. Um, all of that, you know, they find it sort of um, untoward or, or whatever, you know, it violates some sensibility they have. Right. And the, these are usually the same people that would tell, you know, the, the Bible whispers about homosexuality or something like that too. So, you know, right. take it with exactly. a grain of salt. Yeah. But, um, you know, what I hear though, when you, when you, talk about Kuiper and, you know, get excited about, about him is, is not really that at all, right? It's simply looking or pursuing a cohesive and coherent vision of, of the Christian life that is actually the whole of life.
1: Right. And my concern, as I, as I echoed in the, in the sermon at council a, a week or so ago, is that we need to be very cautious that we don't embrace princes and horses and chariots, uh, you know, full-bodied is that if we don't, if we don't worship the Triune God, if worship does not become fundamental to our identity, then our outward work will be in vain. Our labor will be in vain. We can pour our affection in the political process, but if if our houses, so to speak, are not in order, we're going to communicate that in 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 a fashion that's not going to be cohesive. There's going to be a lot of confusion the way that's communicated. So. We want to focus on the idea that civilization ought to have um, a certain piety to them guided by, by a, 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 a biblical prudence, a biblical rationale, but that does not come ex nihilo. It's built on the foundation of a worshiping people that begin their week on the Lord's day and then flesh out that blueprint to all of society. And I do think these things come together. And so that's why I think the CREC has become such a, a voice of reason in our, you know, in our disputes of our day and the issues that arise, because that level of of, of continuity from Sunday through the rest of the week is a very central part of who we are.
2: Right, right. And you, and you would say that, you know, in this... Um you know, in trying to provide that prophetic witness which i which I do think i mean whether you're a Cyperion or you know as i as I would more lean just in terms of labels and, and use of sources you know towards uh, magisterial to, you know sort of performers doesn't mean that all, everything is a contradictory, but in either of those you will see right. you know the the church's um weapons the church's sword is you know the prophetic witness, the chastisement and correction of you know, the powers that be, um, these, these sorts of things. Um, and obviously, you know, we're li- relying upon, uh, the, the witness of scripture, which is, is pure and the work of the spirit. Um, but at the same time, as yes. you said, you know, there is, there is a sort of credibility function that we just have to recognize in human affairs that that follow churches around. Right. So, um, and I,
1: Right. And Kuiper, you know, Kuiper talks about this in his book on the Holy Spirit, mm-hmm. which is just a, a massive tome of the Holy Spirit. But he talks about, and I think it's, he's echoing the principle of Ephesians chapter 6 and the armor of God, that when Christians come from the world of the sacred, so to speak, and they come to the secular world, we're not dealing merely with human ideologies. Kuyper says that the failure of the, failure of the church in his time in the Netherlands, certainly the failure of the church today, is that we don't see the spiritual battle, the spiritual co- controlling voices over human affairs. And so I think the appealing feature of Kuiper is that he saw this profound spiritual warfare being fought, affecting deeply the, the, the human process so that the only ones who are truly capable of addressing society's woes are those who are in submission to Jesus because we have been bought with a price. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And so in other words, to enter into the political sphere, Requires a people who knows what's behind the human political smear. In
0: closing, uh, Yuri, you know, any anything else you want to tell our audience? Like what what specifically can they be praying for you while you operate in this
1: role? Well, thank you very much for that question. I I think this is a new role for me, so I am obviously maturing in it. And I think as we move forward, I know there are going to be challenges and. What's encouraging to me is coming from counsel and seeing, in many ways, the spirit of unity from that. There, there are always going to be differences, things we're, we're working through, but the spirit of unity in the bond of peace you know, by the power of the Spirit is the kind of thing that I think we need to be reminded of consistently in the CREC. And as I continue in this role, I would pray that God would give us the kind of, of publicity that honors God, the kind of publicity... That allows us to function as we are as a body of churches, and that we would make the right kind of enemies. And what I mean by making the right kind of enemies is that we would purposefully, uh, sometimes unintentionally, but in many ways intentionally, make the, the kinds of enemies that the church needs to have. We need to have the right enemies, and those are the enemies that are causing havoc within the church, and sometimes. Those can be even evangelical voices that, though they're not apostates, but they're causing confusion within the church, and they're leading your common parishioner on the pew to confusion about issues of of sexuality, confusion on issues regarding the, the significance and the authority of the Bible, and where these voices arise, even within the domain of evangelicalism, I, as a representative and the minister of the CREC, need to be very bold to confront them so that the people who are out there watching what we are saying publicly will say, at the very least, there is one or two or three witnesses, voices of reasons out there. And so I think the prayer I would like to have is that folks would understand that my role would require making the right kinds of enemies and that I would pursue the right battles at the right time. That's that's good, Yuri. The,
2: I think the um, you know if we have more time, I would ask you to disabuse Josh of his epistemologically modernist and voluntarist view of of the work of the sacraments <laughs> and the efficacious nature of the spirit. But we we'll, we don't have to do that now. Um, I do. I mean, the last thing you said too of this this sort of an interesting part of your role is is not only to of course publicly represent the CREC to. Um, you know, we'd say political forces or um, whatever the public generally, but then also, you know, in in relationship to other evangelical and Protestant, um, you know, denominations, and even offering a brotherly corrective voice in in that regard as well, which I think is is desperately needed and probably has been what has attracted a lot of people to the CREC in recent days, even over the past. This is totally anecdotal, right. but I think you mentioned things earlier that kind of confirm it to me it's like the past three to five years. I've just met so many people that are, are totally new um, to the CREC, but are, you know, all, very enthusiastic about it, but they, it, it happened over the past three to five years. it's not like they've been in it since the, since the late nineties. Right. So, uh, you know, that's especially with younger guys, right? Like, I mean, it's, uh, you know, 35 right. and, be- and below uh, type, type of age bracket. So that's really, really encouraging. And, um, you know, it's, I was I'm I'm doing this course with with Mike Lynch on Richard Baxter, and you know I was reading him the other day, and he says, you know, this is this is by analogy, but the the reason you know the magistrate, the good magistrate, needs to pass laws um, that are good laws and that uh, you know honor Christ and things, are are because most people are easily bullied by other people. It's not that they're stupid, mm. it's that they're bullied. He doesn't use that that term. And what the magistrate does is is basically protect them from bullies and and say no you know you're you're not crazy and this is correct it's it's a good thing it's not silly to honor God and to uh, follow His word and so it's you know he's kind of protective in that way and that's that's similar to what you were just saying and offering that witness to other people and I've seen that work especially again in young guys' lives um, just. Um, you know, through the CREC generally, their their witness sort of reminding them, no, you're not crazy, and there is there is other people out there that think like you do and are, uh, see the similar problem. So I'm glad to, glad to hear that it will be part of your role as well. Um, you know, not not attacking other denominations, but but definitely you know offering witness to them as well.
1: Right. Yes, and I think you know the part of the role also includes sort of building warm relations with. Other traditions that would desire to walk alongside us. And I think that's part of that role is to, you know, build build warm relations with institutions that share our ideals, that want to propagate and proclaim the good news of the gospel through a, a strong biblical fervor without apologizing for the text itself. And by strengthening the kinds of Western traditions that we have been, uh, you know, we have been placed in by the hand of God himself. And so if we lose the two central features of civilization, which that, that hold civilization together, which would be, uh, you know, tradition with little T, which is our Western heritage, and then tradition with a capital T, which I think it's the... The, the authority of the scriptures. If we lose these things, or if we, or if we put, you know, if we despise one and favor the other, uh, I think we'll begin to see a disintegration of our identity. And so I want to build warm relations with institutions and organizations that will share these ideals that they want to, uh, they don't want to excommunicate the West, but they want to bring the West into its most robust presentation as it submits to biblical authority.
2: Well, Josh, I don't know about you, but I think that's a great word to end on right there.
0: Absolutely, I'm fired up, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm gonna send you the contact information for all of the SBC leadership and you, got, you, need, to get, you need to get collaborating with them. Um, Yuri, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: delight to be with you and I am uh, so appreciative of the work you guys do and uh, keep up the good work. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Yuri. Um, audience, thank you
0: for joining us again today. Uh, we, we thank you for your attentiveness Um, Always remember, uh, you can find us on Apple Podcasts. You can find us on uh, Podbean, Spotify, any other purveyor of fine podcasts. Uh, Leave those reviews and rankings. That really helps us extend our reach. Uh, And you can find our journal at AmericanReformer.org. Thank you so much, everyone. And until next time, God bless. Thank you for listening to the American Reformer podcast. Make sure to visit us online at americanreformer.org. That's americanreformer.org. You can also follow us on Facebook and on Twitter at
1: amreformer.